Good morning. I pray you are well acquainted with that passage. It's one you've likely heard many times in your life. And sometimes it's the more familiar passages that during a sermon we have a chance to look at a greater depth. And so I, I pray that God would open the eyes of our hearts to help us to see this passage in a way we haven't seen it before this morning. Let me open in prayer and let's, let's jump into the sermon. God, um, you are a God of love. You are love. And you've showered us with your grace and mercy this morning. Like we just sung, your mercy is more, Father. If we are honest with ourselves, our sins, they truly are many. Father, we, we fall short every day. And yet, God, as broken sinners, God, you have sent your son into the world to die for us. And so we thank you for that. Help us to see what true love looks like. And I pray, Father, that you would use it as a mirror to our pride this morning. That you would help us to see it, examine it, and to kill it this morning by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So normally, when you hear 1 Corinthians 13, especially verses 4 through 7, what context do you hear it in? A wedding, right? A wedding. So this is a great example of how and when context matters. So just picture yourself maybe at the last wedding you were at or or wedding you've been to where this passage was read. Um, There's family, there's friends there who have come together to celebrate the union of two people. There's anticipation, um, delight. There's great hope and joy in that moment for what is happening and what is to come for this couple. And you look up and you see the couple and likely they're looking at each other and you see their eyes that are full of love. And you think, man, they, the way they're looking at each other, it's as if there's no flaw in them. They, they see each other as flawless. And that, that is right. That's straight from the Song of Solomon. That's a beautiful thing to see the other like that. Um, for, then you have the reading of 1 Corinthians 13 then. Love is patient, love is kind, etc. And when that is dropped into that beautiful, joyous occasion... When that verse, that, those passages are dropped into that context, it's, it's celebratory. It's almost a trophy, a poem exclaiming what love is given this lovey-dovey couple we have up in front of us. You might even be tempted to look on and see, man, how easy it, is it for this couple to love one another today? Look how in love they are with each other. Love is abounding in this scene, and let's celebrate love by reading 1 Corinthians 13. Okay. So we get that context. That context is not necessarily wrong. It's right to read God's word at a wedding and to hear what love truly is. But I propose a different context for this passage. Let's drop these same verses into its original context, into 1 Corinthians, the, the church in the first century in the city of Corinth. So what do we know about the church in Corinth in the first century? Well, let me give you a brief overview and survey of the book of 1 Corinthians. We went through this book in 2014, um, so hopefully you remember. But just to do a survey of what, it, what was the context of that church? What did it look like? Well, we hear in chapter 1 that this church was equipped with speech, knowledge, and gifts. That they were a very talented church. And yet, in that same chapter, they have divisions, quarreling, and pride. In chapter 5... We hear that there's sexual immorality going on, and they are proud that there's, they're boasting, and there's a, a man who's sleeping with his father's wife. Not only is there sexual immorality, but in chapter 6, people are taking each other to court. 
They are suing one another rather than dealing with it as Christians ought to. In chapter 9, we hear that people are eating meat sacrificed to idols, which was not a sin, as Paul tells us, but they were doing it in a way that caused the weaker brothers to stumble. That some people were still um, fixated on the fact that there was idolatry mixed in somewhere, and they were not taking into consideration or loving their brothers in this way, but they were abusing their freedom in Christ. And then another, the, the last picture of the survey is in chapter 11, when we see the Lord's table, people were coming and treating it like a buffet. They were coming, and they were going ahead and, and eating and letting others go hungry. And so rather than using it as a time to celebrate the broken body and shed blood of our Lord, they were using it as a feast, and it looked like a high school cafeteria where there were cliques and divisions going on. So this is just a brief survey. So this is the context where we come in and we hear 1 Corinthians 13. Now, when you hear it in that context, it's less of a celebratory poem, and it's more of a rebuke to their pride. And it should be to ours this morning as well. Because while our church may not have all those same exact issues as the church in first century Corinth, we still struggle with the root of those issues, and that root is pride. That while we may not have rank sexual immorality going on by God's grace, that there is still lust that occurs in the local churches. That while there may not be murder happening, or while there may not be these outward things, there's still anger in our hearts. And so we have to see ourselves as maybe not the same as the church in Corinth, but we are still God's local church, and we are still messed up, we are sinners, and we still need the grace of God. And so let's hear 1 Corinthians 13 in its context as coming and almost describing what love is as the complete polar opposite of what the church is behaving like. So when you hear it this morning, hear it with those ears, that it is coming to be a mirror and a rebuke to your pride. Because God's love is a rebuke to our pride, what we're called to this morning and what, the, what we'll hear is that we're called to die to self and we're called to rely on the grace of God. So first, let's look at how God's standard is truly a rebuke to our pride. So hopefully, when you read 1 Corinthians 13, when you hear it, hopefully we as a church are marked by this love. That we are not completely the opposite of it. But if you have been redeemed and you are a believer, that your life is characterized by one that has been renewed, and it is showing the love of Christ. And yet, the reality is before we reach heaven, there is not prideful people over here and loving people over there. There's not this, these two different classes. But within all of you, within all of you, there are, there are layers of pride that you have yet to discover and there are also capabilities of sacrificial love that you have yet to explore. And so, lest we think that this passage or this rebuke is for someone else, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to realize that until we reach heaven, we need to peel back those layers of pride. And the way that that happens is by meditating on love, by seeing perfect love, and seeing how, uh, how, far, how far we fall from that standard. True love is a rebuke in that it sets the, the standard of what true love is much higher than our pride can achieve. Pride thinks that's good enough. And yet, when you read true love here, and you try to fill in your name to this passage, you say, Kurt is patient. Kurt is kind. Um, Kurt always protects. Kurt always hopes. If you just try to insert your name into this passage and read it like that, you hopefully come to quickly realize that you do not stand up to this passage. So even... 
any, any pride that might be lurking in us cannot stand up to this mirror. So it rebukes our pride in that it shows us that the standard of love, God's standard, is infinitely higher than ourselves. Secondly, it's a rebuke to our pride in that it defines what true love is for us. The true love is giving of yourself away. It's not protecting or promoting your own image, but it's, tr- it's giving yourself away. It's the opposite. It's deflating the pride in you. So sadly, love has been so redefined in our culture today that love is whatever makes you feel good and whatever makes me feel good. Whatever accepts, whatever, however you accept me and I accept you, that is what love is. It is a building of each other up, even if that building up is on sin, on the platform of sin. And what true love comes, comes in and, and knocks out for us is the pride that says that I need to feel comfortable, I need to feel accepted. It reminds us that love is built on truth and the truth of God's word, which reminds us that we are vile sinners in need of a glorious Savior. Amen? So look with me. Let's open up the passage in 1 Corinthians, starting with verse, the second half of verse 4 and verse 5. We'll see how it is first a rebuke to our pride. Second half of verse 4. does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. So we're just going to take those six propositions to start out with. When you hear those, hopefully you hear a theme that starts to emerge, that the common theme here is that love requires you to die to yourself. It requires you to deflate yourself and to die. It, it doesn't boast in its, itself or, or list its accomplishment, but the way love is described here is to see that, no, it's the opposite of self-exaltation. So let's walk down this list and see, look at um, what these things are and how they're described. We'll exegete it a bit, and hopefully you'll, as you're walking through this, you'll be asking yourself, do I boast? How do I seek myself? How do I dishonor others? So I pray that you see that even though you might be inclined to think of the people in your life that need to hear this sermon, that need to hear the true definition of love, I challenge you this morning, before your mind goes there to those who you think need to hear this, think, how is this a mirror for me? And in that, you can truly grow and become more like Christ. All right, so we'll start out here with love does not boast. So what is boasting? Many of you know it. It's listing your accomplishments, whether however obvious or subtle that might be. Sometimes it looks like monopolizing conversations, so you're not necessarily taking accolades for yourself, but you're just dominating the conversation because you think your opinion needs to be expressed. Boasting can take many forms, but it it comes out of a heart that wants to puff itself up. We see Christ doing the exact opposite with the rich young ruler, don't we? When the rich young ruler came to Christ, he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Christ say? Who is good? Only God. So in a perfect opportunity, Christ had to boast. What did he do? He turned away from it, and he said, Only God is good. Christ himself did not and never did boast. He didn't need to. He was so wrapped up in the glory of the Father. A byproduct of this boasting is the next on our list, It does not, love does not dishonor others. So if we're going to boast, 
oftentimes what that works out in is a slight disparaging of others. That if you're going to lift yourselves up, that others have to go down in some way. Or you, you might be talking and you could say, I could never be like that person. Or how could that person say this thing or act in this way? And we're, we're careful, we're not so overt about this, but whenever we think those thoughts or say those things, we bring dishonor to others. Because when we say, I could never, we move out of reality and we don't see ourselves rightly. It's only the grace of God that makes you different from the worst person you know or the most annoying person in your life. That's the truth. Now, husbands and wives, we have to be very careful about this, especially about dishonor, not dishonoring the other person. Husbands and wives have a front row seat to the other person, don't we? We get to see the, the, the worst things about them and the best things about them. And so there is great temptation in marriage to, over time, to see the worst in them. And whether you think it or not, that wor- those, some of those worst things can come out to friends and family and other people. And when that happens, we are bringing dishonor upon the spouse. And so spouses take this as a warning to guard the honor of the other. Even if they are not acting honorable, there is a right place and time for counseling and for bringing the word of God to help that person. But oftentimes, if we want to feel like we're the good guy in the marriage, if we want to see that our, our way is right, um, we can do this. We can succumb to dishonoring others and putting them down in slightly disparaging ways. And so true love does not dishonor others. Christ had every opportunity to dishonor the tax collectors and prostitutes, didn't he? Every opportunity. And yet he was not frustrated with them. He had compassion on them. What a difference it is when Christ sees these people and rather than throwing shame and guilt upon them, he brings compassion and love. So how much more should we, after seeing that, Christ has extended that to us. Moving down on our list, love is not proud. Literally, being the word here is, it's not puffed up. So what are we puffed up with? So when someone is proud, when they're a proud person or when they're puffed up, what they're puffed up with is honestly, it's just hot air. It is, it is nothing. No accomplishment, no thing that they've done in their life. As much as they think it matters, as important as they think it is to themselves, whatever they are boasting about, ultimately, it does not matter. Because who, whose standard decides what matters and what doesn't matter? It's God's, right? So anyone who is boasting, anyone who is puffing themselves up, is doing so with, with, with vacuous hot air. And so what they see is, what we see in those who are boast is that it, it, it cannot boast because whatever they're taking pride in, first of all, doesn't matter. And like Brandon prayed before the sermon, that anything good we have in our lives, any accomplishment, is a gift from him anyways. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, what do you have that you have not received? I hope that we have the same idea, saints, that everything good in our lives that we have, it has been a gift from God. And so we have no reason to think highly of ourselves, but we should be filled with thankfulness to him. Now the problem with boasting, the problem with being proud, is that it is blinding. It is blinding. So if you, the person who thinks that they are not proud, they are number one on the list of candidates of probably being proud. And, and that is the, the nature of it, is that as we saw in chapter 5, as we heard in the survey, the Corinthian church was, was proud of themselves for their spiritual, what they thought to be maturity, and yet amongst themselves they were condoning sexual immorality. 
And so if it's true of that church, it's still true of us today, that we need to be on guard against the pride that doesn't see itself for what it is. And we don't see ourselves when we don't look long and hard into the mirror of, of, of verses here, like 1 Corinthians 13. Christ, when we see his life, he had every right to be proud. He was the son of God, royalty. And yet what does Philippians 2 tell us he did? He stepped down into our world. He became nothing. That He became like in human form and, and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but came and died for us, took the lowest position. So Christ com- comes and show us what true love is. It is not proud. One mask pride takes, brothers and sisters, is it takes self-seeking. What does it mean to seek yourself? In the ESV, it talks about being uh, insisting on your own way. So it's not just the person who, when taking pizza orders, says, no, we have to have supreme. <laughs> it is my way because I like this type. It is much more than that. It is not just insisting on your own order. But self-seeking is someone who is looking to promote themselves or have comfort in any given situation. We live in a find-yourself culture, a culture that says that you need to love yourself and find yourself. Now, one way that our marketing caters to that is that it gives us products and technologies that help us to be wrapped up in ourselves. One of the biggest ones is smartphones these days. With the advent of smartphones, notifications and apps have been designed to to cater to whatever our likes and preferences are. Even if you've Googled something, a second later an ad will pop up advertising that very thing to you so that you can buy it, so that you can actually acquire that thing. It's the, 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 your phone itself is catered, and it's smart, and it learns what your, your habits are and what your searches are, and it's catered to say, how can I meet your Kurt's comforts in this situation? So although technology, is a, it can be a beautiful thing, and it makes life easier in so many ways, it's not, it's not a, a spiritually evil thing. Our sin gravitates and grabs hold of this tool, and it uses it so that it can advance self-seeking in our lives. Smartphones, for example, have promoted in this, in this sin and have caused it to expand in, in that they cut out any need for boredom. There's no need to be bored anymore. There's no need to sit and contemplate ourselves or, or pray whenever you can take that opportunity or take that moment to look at what is most interesting. Oftentimes, we've been conditioned then to fight for me time, that we, we grind through social interactions, we grind through the workday so that we can get to the end of the day when we can have me time, or we can have an alone moment where we can look at our phones again or be alone so that we can cater to ourselves. That's just one example, and I know I'm guilty of this myself, of allowing self-seeking to, to, to get out of hand and to, to take advantage in, in the negative way of the technology and things that are available to us. So we need to be on guard against self-seeking. And see, this is the opposite of love. Love does not seek self. <coughs> Christ makes this clear in Mark 6. This is a great example. That in Mark chapter 6, Jesus and, and his disciples were looking to have to go to a solitary place to rest. And what happens whenever they're about to go on the boat to get rest? He looks and he sees a people 
says in Mark 6, that looked like sheep without a shepherd. There's a, a crowd of people that were clamoring to hear him speak. And you can just feel for Jesus in that moment that, man, he has been ministering all day long and he wants to rest. And yet when he looks at those people, does he self-seek? No, he does not. He says, they are a people who, who need a shepherd. They need to hear the good news. And so he pushes through his, his exhaustion and he goes and he, he multiplies food for them and preaches the good news to them. What an example of fighting against tiredness, fighting against exhaustion, to not seek your own self, but to seek what is good for others around you. That is what true love is, brothers and sisters. Next on our list, love is not easily angered. So <clears throat> one saying we have for this is walking on eggshells around someone. Love is not easy, easily angered. Are you someone that, that knows people that you have to walk on eggshells around, that if you might say something, they might get easily offended by you? Or are you easily offended yourself? Another popular word for this today, and oftentimes it's used online, is the word triggered. We live in, an, a, in a culture that is, has such a s- sense of self-importance that we take on these, these loves and have these positions that we think are so um, vital and are so wrapped up in our identity that if someone is to come along and say something against us or to um, say that we are wrong, that, that people are, are prone to get triggered uh, or, or to, to be easily angered about things. Now, if we don't die to ourselves, people's opinions will control us. If we are not seeking to put ourselves to death that, and, 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 be, and decrease, then what people say about us, whether it's online or in person, or what people's opinions of us are, they will blow us around, and they will make us easily angered. And if someone has an opinion about us or says, no, you didn't say that, or questions us, we will get on the defensive, because we have to. We have to seek ourselves. The proud person must, will necessarily get easily angered, and that is wrong. We see that Christ, when he overturned the money changers' tables, we see a righteous anger there. We see the opposite of this pride. We see love in that moment. Because his anger was not quick, it wasn't flippant, it wasn't an affront to him. Christ was secure in who he was. And he was there on a purpose with righteous anger. So love is not easily angered. There's a time for anger. But that anger should be an offense that God is being dishonored, not yourself or your own image. If you're honest with yourself, you say that whatever this person says about me, God knows infinitely worse. And so why am I getting so offended or bent out of shape so quickly? Love is not easily angered. And last on this list that characterizes these six themes of of showing us how we ought to die to ourselves is love does not keep a record of wrongs. So keeping a record of wrongs, this is not necessarily forgetting what others have done against you. Sometimes it's not wise to do that, nor are we capable of doing that. Some of our memories cannot just be erased on the spot. We're not, God's not calling us to, to just simply forget. But not keeping a record of wrongs is love in that it's choosing to pardon the people who have wronged you. It's a deliberate choosing to forgive. If you do not die to self and see the list of wrongs and sins that you have committed against the Savior if you don't see how long that list is and how, what Christ did to pardon you for, for them, 
if you don't see how long that list is, then you will keep a record of wrongs, brothers and sisters. You will say, you know, how dare you offend me? But whenever you see yourself in, in light of that holy God and what, God, what Christ did to forgive you, then you cannot keep a list against anyone because you have been pardoned for so much more. God does not simply forget all the sins you did before you were a believer, but he, he covers them in Christ. He wipes them clean. He treats you as if they were not there. How easy is that for you, brothers and sisters, to do with your family and friends? How easy is that for you to do with those who you grew up with, maybe? To not keep a record of wrongs. These true love characteristics, they force us to die. Love cannot grow in this environment. This is a toxic environment if we were to cultivate any of these negative aspects. So we must die to all of these things. You might ask, how do I die to self? How do I put boasting and seeking self and being easily angered? How do I put these things to death? The way you can do that, brothers and sisters, is through repentance and faith in Christ. No one can die to themselves on their own. No one can say, I'm going to become less without making Christ more. You have to fill that void, that vacuum with Christ himself. And then you will want to become less when you see that he is an infinitely better king to rule on the throne of your heart. When he does, you will want to die to yourself because you'll see that life is not about your wellness, your promotion, and your kingdom. Life is about the kingdom of God. And you will see your place in his kingdom. You will want to become a tool, a worker for God's glory. And it will not be about you anymore, but it will be about how God can use you to glorify his name. Amen. So, now that we've identified areas that we are prone to promote and protect our own image, we see how we should die to ourselves. And it's not shedding of your personality, it's not becoming not you, but it's shedding the sin. It's, it's saying that Christ is sufficient, and when he is, you're able to put God and others first. So, his standard of love, his perfect mirror of love, not only causes us to die to sin, but it also forces us to rely upon the grace of God. And as we look at the rest of this list, we'll see that the grace of God is required if we are to love in this way. So look with me at the first part of chapter four, and then six and seven. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Sorry. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. And then moving down to uh, verses six through seven. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So starting with love is patient. Patience is more concerned about the growth of others than your immediate retribution for them. Patience is able to trust in God's timing for those around you rather than your expectations of them in the moment. Whenever we are prone to get impatient with those in our family, with those at work, with those around us, it's because we have expectations for them. And those are not always wrong expectations. But patience sees the big picture. It sees that God can change that person, and you are more interested about their long-term growth than you are about them doing what you want in that moment. Patience is only possible when we see how God, how, how God has been so patient with us we see that God 
came to us, and he should have put us to death immediately. And yet, some of you who came to Christ later in life, he strove with you all those years, and he was patient at your many revilings of him and of you ignoring him and, and blaspheming his name. He was so patient with you. So when you get that grace of God, when you rely upon his grace, you are able to be patient. Consider Christ's patience with Peter. Peter, the one who he invested in and poured time into, he gave up on Christ. He denied him three times, and yet Christ was patient and reinstated Peter and used him for his glory. Christ shows us the picture of perfect patience. Love is not only patient, but love is kind. Kindness is an active goodness. It's not only being polite. It's not just an outward politeness, but it is, it is a sacrificial grace. Love, or th- this kindness, is, sh- is a willingness to be good towards those and to extend grace toward those, even if they may not like you, even if they, they may not be your best friend. Being kind to others is not about just playing the part or showing an image of, of what you think they might want to see but it is genuinely having the person's best interest in mind and saying, I'm going to be kind to this person and sacrificially love them even if they don't deserve it. Christ was so kind to Thomas. When doubting Thomas came and wanted to feel Christ's hands and his side to prove that he was truly resurrected, Christ didn't have to be kind to him, but Christ was so kind with Thomas that he allowed him the grace to touch his wounds. Even though he could have He could have rebuked his doubt in that moment. He didn't. He was kind. I pray that because God has been so kind with us, we can see that true love is kind. And we are often not kind with our speech toward others because we have not seen how how kind God has been with us. Love does not envy as well. To, To not envy requires that we are dependent and satisfied on the grace of God. When we are satisfied in Christ and we believe that we have everything, that we do not need anything from anyone else. We are able to look at people who have things that we want and we are able to truly be happy for them because we have everything in Christ. Envy, brothers and sisters, is so dangerous because it not only destroys you inside, it eats you alive because you don't have what you want, but envy is also dangerous in that it hurts the person you are envying. It completely destroys whatever relationship might be possible there. Because when you're envying and jealous of what that person has, you're not thinking, how can I do this person good? You're thinking, how can I get what this person has? And you are making it about you. And oftentimes this works itself out in contempt. You, are, you have contempt for that person, that they have what you don't. And it, you might even throw some guilt trips for them, or you might even have felt guilt tripped by people because you took that trip where you had that thing that they want. Envy does this. In Christ, when he was offered the, the, all the kingdoms of the world by Satan, Christ did not envy Satan. He did not envy the kingdoms of the world because Christ had something greater. Christ had his kingdom, and he had his father. And so he did not need to envy. So because Christ didn't, because he was satisfied in God, he was able to avoid the temptation of envy. Envy, And if we are in Christ, we can too. Love, skipping down to verse 6, it does not delight in evil. It does not delight in evil. 
This often takes place if you are not saved. If you have yet to be regenerated or converted or a true Christian, then you will delight in evil. You will laugh at wrong or bad things that happen to others. You will talk lightly or joke about things that are weighty and serious. You will see atrocities and evil, and you will not think they're that bad. That is a mark of being a non-believer, is delighting in evil. Or you'll want to look at evil. You'll want to see evil things. You'll want to see images and hear jokes that you ought not. Test yourself this morning. If you are truly in Christ, do you delight in evil? If you are a Christian, we are still susceptible to this, brothers and sisters. Because as Christians, we still take pride in things of this world. If we take pride in anything in this world above God, like sports teams, political parties, or race, those are three examples, then if we take pride in those above God, then we will vilify and we will take delight when evil happens to our rivals, won't we? I know that I have a hard time, when I was growing up, I loved Ohio State football. And so when I saw them play Michigan, which was their rival, I used to hate them, which evil would come upon them. Now that is a, a trite example, but when you take a position that is in allegiance with anything of the world, then you will rejoice when evil happens to the opposition. And, th and that is wicked. Now, if our allegiance is with God, then we will not, even the most vile person in the world, we will not ultimately want to see evil happen to them. We, want to see, we will want to see good because we know that we are, ourselves are evil. And if our evil was poured on Christ on the cross, how can we wish that on others when the, when the sinless Savior did so much good for us when we had evil? So we will not delight in it. And, and hopefully this will be a, a test for us to not take allegiance with things in the world. The other side of not delighting in evil is rejoicing in the truth. Now, like we defined love earlier, it's not just a sense of feeling good or making others feeling good. So this, this rejoicing in the truth is what grounds love in the truth. True love wants God's glory to shine forth and his truth to be known. So truth is sometimes hard, isn't it? Truth wants to, um, to, to unveil whatever is real and whatever God agrees with, even if it is at a disadvantage for us. So true love is honest with ourselves and honest with others. So true love is able to be vulnerable because it's no longer about preserving ourselves. You'll be able to have accountability and true friendships where you talk about your deepest, darkest sins with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you if you're loving them and if you love God, then you will rejoice in truth over rejoicing in your self-preservation. You will be able to be honest with yourself and honest with others because truth is of higher value to you than your own image. True love is also rejoicing in the truth and that it allows us to love others. This is what makes correcting and rebuking and discipline love. The world doesn't understand those things as love because it does not rejoice in truth. But we can see the value of love here because we rejoice that we want the best for others in light of God's revelation. We want them to be one with God. And sometimes that is hard, but true love enables us to rejoice in the truth even if it's not that pleasant to confront. So true love rejoices in truth. 
How easy is it for you to open up about your difficulties to others? How easy is it for you to speak with kindness and humility to brothers and sisters or people who are close to you who you see in error? Those are hard things, and they're hard because we have layers of pride that keep us from doing that. We have not loved as Christ has called us to. And this mirror of love exposes that and calls us to rely on the grace of God because when we do, we rejoice in the truth and we are able to do those hard things that we're called to. Finally, in our passage, here in verse 6, we are given the always or all things last poem. So it says that It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So pairing the first and the last together, it always protects and it always perseveres. Love has an enduring quality to it because it's from God. True love, as we saw last week, is from a God who gives his mercy and it never gives up. God's love cannot be tainted, it cannot be destroyed by anyone. God's love never ends. So if that is true, then we are able to protect others. We're able to persevere with them even when we feel like giving up. Even when we're going through hard things and we're in a, maybe a church situation where, uh, where uh, someone is, is in sin and it's difficult, we're able to walk beside that person. We're able to persevere with them We're able to continue in marriages that are difficult. We're able to protect our children and and guard them even whenever we're frustrated with them because we see the enduring quality of love. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not anything we are naturally capable of doing. We must rely upon the grace of God and see how his grace never gives up, how it endures forever. And when it does, we will be able to persevere too. That's the first and the last one. The middle two, it always trusts, or it rejoices Sorry, it always uh, trusts and it always hopes. It always trusts and it always hopes. Now, this is not hoping or just thinking the best in someone else. It's not just considering, oh, let's see the bright side of that person. But always trusting and always hoping is hoping in, in knowing that God can change anyone. In any, any situation, as bleak as it might look, God is able to change in the future. So this love that always trusts and hopes is a trust that is rooted in the character of God. It's knowing that he can change someone because he is the one who has done that even to you. That God is all-powerful and all-loving. And so we are able to always trust and always hope. Now, one of the things that makes life difficult is when we lose hope. When you're in a situation where it seems like you're at a dead end, where things Um, seem difficult, one of the first things to go is to hope. Hope is so important, Christians, brothers and sisters, for us to cultivate and to have. Whatever situation you are in life right now, I pray that you have hope in your heart. You have hope that God can not only grow you to face adversity, to, to get through whatever is hard right now in life, but you have hope of heaven. Hope of one day, not only not only having a deeper relationship with Christ in this life, but having seen him face to face and being there in heaven. When our hope is finally in heaven, we're able to process the trials and struggles of this life in a way that causes us to lose the grip from this world 
and to have a greater grasp in, 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 on heaven and what our true hope should be in. We're able to say, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Love always trusts and it always hopes. Not because we think people are good and are able to change, but we believe in a God who can change people. Reflecting on this standard, our pride is shown clearly in the mirror, isn't it? We see that we are, we are not like this, that we fail in so many ways, that our pride doesn't need a savior because it doesn't think it needs saving. We think we're good. Pride doesn't need a cross because pride thinks that it is, it is good in and of itself and it hates death. Cross is, the cross is the epitome of shame. It's the epitome of weakness. So pride doesn't think it needs the cross. Our pride doesn't think it needs an empty tomb because pride doesn't think it needs to deal with, with death and resurrection. This life is what there is. In our pride, lastly, it keeps us from understanding the gravity of God's grace for us. Pride thinks that we just need a little grace, that we just need a little help. But, but brothers and sisters, the good news is that love incarnate, Jesus himself, true love came. He came to overcome our pride and he came to reverse the curse. Christ, who was truly loving as we, see, as we saw in all these examples, the epitome of love, came and he died on a Roman cross for you and I. He came and he took all those layers of pride that we have even yet to see and he heaped them upon himself. And he loved you and I when he had nothing to gain. He loved you and I so that God would be glorified and ultimately you would have eternal life in him. He loved you and he died for you so that you could be transformed to, to love sacrificially beyond yourself. And so that you could, could say that I, I've been created by God and I'm living in this world and yet I'm living in opposition. I'm living trying to establish my own kingdom. And the cross exposes that kingdom. It undercuts it and shows us that we can now, through the forgiveness of Christ, through repentance and faith in the Savior, we can come and we can live within the kingdom of God and we can truly love and die to ourselves. We no longer need our own image to be liked or promoted or preserved. <coughs> People can say whatever they want about us. Our situation in life may look terrible. We can be persecuted, and that's okay. And that's okay because they did that to him too. And because if we have Christ, we have everything. We have perfect love. And when the grace of God has enamored us, when we soak in it, then we see that God loves me. And that is everything, brothers and sisters. And when it is, we are able to, to give away and to freely love those who are difficult to love. We are able to see the standard of love and, be, and, and say things like, you know, I may not be patient. I may, not, I may be easily angered. And yet, because Christ died for me, and because my faith is in him, I have his perfect record. And when God sees me, he sees someone who is patient. He sees someone who is kind. And if I have Christ's perfect record, if God sees me, as a perfectly loving person, then I know that I'm right with God. Not because of myself, but because of the, the robe of righteousness I have from Christ. And when you see that that is your identity, brothers and sisters, you are capable and equipped by the power of Christ alone, alone and with a reliance on his grace to love in extravagant ways. So in conclusion, without love, we are nothing. Without love, we are nothing. And so we must meditate 
on this mirror of God's love. Whenever you're feeling yourself growing impatient, wanting to quit, go to Christ for fresh grace. See how he is love incarnate and what he did for you on the cross. See the extent of grace he extended to you and you were able to love. This love, brothers and sisters, is able to transform all your relationships. It gives you hope. Those who you are living with, those who, are, who, who you're surrounded by you in your everyday context, they are able to change as well. And God might even use you as the agent of change in their life. This is exciting. This is an amazing thing that God will not only grow you to new heights uh, of love and of sacrifice, but you might be the person through which God wants to change the annoying and frustrating people around you. Horizontally, one application of this love is that we need to initiate getting to know one another better. Oftentimes, this love doesn't even have a place or an environment or an opportunity to grow and thrive simply because we are not initiating those relationships. We need to build a relational capital with one another, brothers and sisters, I know life is busy. I know this culture is fast-paced. I know we live on different sides of town and we don't want to fight against traffic. But we need to see each other outside of the Sunday context. We need to spend time knowing one another well enough where this love can grow and flourish. Where we have time enough to know someone well enough where they're able to confess these sins and we're able to be slow to anger and we're able to not keep a record of wrongs because we even know the wrongs, wrongs the other person has. The early church, it says that they, they met daily and they broke bread and they listened to the apostles' teaching in Acts 2. Now, I don't expect you to meet every single day with someone in the church, but one application of this love is you will be inclined to initiate those relationships. Not just waiting for, you, waiting for other people to invite you over, but it'll be taking that on yourself to say, I'm gonna invest in this person I don't know because I love them and I want to love them in the way God wanted to know me when I was a stranger to God. So that's one horizontal application. A vertical application of this is for us, each of you, this morning, and for the rest of this week, ask God, hold up this mirror of love to my life. May this be verses I memorize. May I hang this on my wall. And, and may this be the rest of your life. You will take this, this passage and use it, not as a, you will, you will celebrate at weddings with it, but you will see it as, as a rebuke to your pride and you will spend the rest of your life having these verses smash on you and smash the pride and show you your flesh and show you how that you are insufficient, yet Christ is sufficient. So ask God vertically to, to reveal this mirror to you and also to see his love for you. That this love is not just meant, not just given, this definition of love is not just given for us to do to one another, but this definition of love is first the way God has loved us. Be uh, just delighted and be overwhelmed that God has been slow to anger with you, that God has been patient and kind, and that while you deserve for him to send you to hell for all eternity, God loved you. He, he protected you. He, he persevered, and he strove with you, and he saved you. And if that is true, then you have much reason for rejoicing this morning. Christ's record is perfect, brothers and sisters. He took all of the ways that we were like that church in Corinth. He took our record of sin, those layers of pride, 
he swapped them with his, and we are his now. And because we have Christ's record, we as a church are able to be marked by love. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, we need your perfect love to reveal and rebuke our pride. We need you to pull up weeds of self-centeredness. May we be so enamored by your grace that we must joyfully, sacrificially funnel that grace and love to others, even at great cost to ourselves. Do this work in our church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.